Hey, y'all. So today you're listening to something special, my special, called Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs Wise, where we elevate voices surfacing from the former capital of the Confederacy of Richmond, Virginia, and how whiteness is still perpetuated in our region, reflecting the national narrative over a privilege over equality. That's all trendy diversity talk for I'm speaking through my lens. What lens? What Chelsea Higgs Wise lens? Well, glad you asked. I'm here because I believe we're all functioning based on the origin of our personal lens of the world. Our world happens to revolve around race. Well, because we live in America and America was built on slavery. Yeah. So my lens comes from directly a white mother raised in a rural racist town called South Hill in Southern Virginia. And my daddy is born right here in Richmond, Virginia, raised in Hillside Court. So when America is having the conversation about hearing both sides, it's legit a reflection of my life, my black, my white, both sides, and how to find a way to complete and have such an integrated conversation from both sides. My mother was a kindergarten teacher and retired from Richmond Public Schools. So I get to meet a lot of y'all former students. Y'all come up to me telling me my mom was mean as hell. And she was. She was that kind of teacher. So in the 90s, a Richmond public school teacher naturally went and put her kid in Chesterfield County Schools. Because, you know, that's what you did. You put your kids around white people to make your kid better. Well, in Chesterfield County Schools, I was able to learn and obsess and assess all the ways of middle class white people. I got to really dive into their habits and behaviors, ways that many people don't. I was invited in. I was at the dinner tables, the after parties. I was in the work study groups. I was like that head cheerleader doing the morning announcements, y'all. Like legit, this was my life. I started to really feel just accepted. Like it was normal for me. (laughs) I'm playing. No, my parents got divorced and split me off of my daddy ways. All my black side was on the other side of the river. And I really didn't understand that culture I was missing. I was feeling this cognitive dissonance. I didn't even understand what it was. My freshman year, I went off to University of Richmond, and the long story short there is uh, they told me real fast that my mixed self was black. I was no longer doing both sides. No, no, no. They saw me as black. Anyway, fast forward, go through grade school. I become a clinician. I got a master's degree. And from there, I then navigate the world with all of the microaggressions and racial profiling, dodging that in and out of my career, being overlooked at work, then silence in a lot of the crowded rooms that are just filled with misogyny. And throughout my entire adulthood, I'm just bucking and weaving. I'm doing it, though. I'm getting it. So outside, the world is happening. Stuff like 9-11, Barack Obama, And then those elections start, those recent ones. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So back to my lens of what's going on. Cut to 2015. I moved back to the city and bunk with my brother and my one-year-old. My brother, by the way, is actually my trans sister because we're all gender fluid around here. And after a divorce, I just dove into my own transformation. All that while I'm seeing like America shining its roots of racism on my social media timeline. This is 2015. Black bodies were dying in the streets at the hand of those that were chosen to serve and protect. I'm quickly reminded that Trayvon Martin being shot and killed in 2012 in the trial of 2013 showed me quickly that black lives do not matter in America. But now that same lack of value was being ingrained in our police department. Here goes my Chesterfield eyes, my lens just blown away. I have many friends in the police department. But none of them willing to talk about the subculture of policing that's now killing black people right here on my smartphone. 
I came back to Richmond and was immediately struck to take action in my community because I saw the bigger picture that the value of black lives was still not being taken seriously. I've been intentional about my work. I'm a social worker. I'm out there really legitimately lifting up black lives. But the recent killing of Marcus David Peters really has me understand that black lives do not matter and did not matter on that day of May 14th. What are the way to start a theme titled race capital than around a symptom that has personally struck me in the last couple years to highlight how Richmond systems are really telling us that black lives don't matter in the formal capital of the Confederacy. Now we've been gentrified in our name and we're now referring to ourselves as hashtag RVA. So today on race capital, I'm here to give a little insight on this Marcus David Peter shooting that happened on May 14th. It started at the Jefferson Hotel, which a lot of media sources won't even bring this up, but he was seen there. He walked in and everything seemed okay. And when he left, he was already showing signs of distress by taking his shirt off. Well, he left the scene and media will tell you that it was exaggerated as heck, but he hit some cars. No, no, no. He might've done some swipe, some side swiping. Well, he lost control and ended up on the side of 95. He displayed symptoms of a psychotic break with some dancing, pressured speech, and coherent speech, as well as bizarre behaviors and just the actions of somebody in need of help. The officer is recorded by his body cam reporting that a mental health issue was there, and it said that the officer had received the crisis intervention training for mental health intervention and had been on the force for 10 years. Marcus David Peters then came off of that highway and was still seeking showing us signs of bizarre behavior. But in that moment, he did charge the officer. And that officer was armed with weapons in his hand. One, he had a taser, and he also had a gun. He attempted to shoot the taser. And if you aren't reading the headlines correctly, you would think that Marcus's psychotic break had him to just charge through the taser. But it actually didn't land. The officer didn't do it the right way. Well, then he did shoot the gun the right way twice in the abdomen. After the shooting, the police chief came on and we have quote, we are all deeply affected by what happened here by the loss of life. Our officers do not take the use of deadly force lightly. I think it's important to remember that being naked does not remove a threat. So far the eyewitnesses account we've heard have been consistent. Our officer tried verbal commands, then used non-lethal force first by deploying the taser before using his service weapon. End quote. So right there, we've got the police chief saying that being naked does not remove the threat and that taser that was not done the right way was the first use of non-lethal force in order to de-escalate the situation. Well, since then, the organizers of the movement, yes, there is a movement behind this Marcus David Peter showing. Can you imagine that? A whole movement behind a black life in Richmond because his life matters. So what we have going on here are real demands from grieving family members. The first was an entire march of a community came together on June 2nd. There was no visual mention or scene of any city official at this march. Well, and then we've got a city council meeting where the family came. The council meeting and the council literally just moved on, just called the next speaker, never even acknowledged the, the organizers there. And recently, the organizers have also just started attending the community hours for the mayor. Why, do you ask? Because the mayor has yet to meet with the family. The mayor has yet to meet with the organizers. 
the interaction from the city officials have been completely zero. So why does this black life still not matter? I will tell you that they are telling everyone to trust the process. Well, today we're going to have an interview with some folks that were at this latest community meeting that was unannounced. If you really see it that way, it was on Facebook, but it definitely took some people off guard because the mayor had been ghosting the organizers for two months now. So let's see what they have to say and we'll be right back. All right. Um, so this is Race Capital. Thank you guys so much for being a part of my very first show, y'all. Like, this is my very first woo, one. Woo. Yay. So why don't we go ahead and um, get started by going around the room to introduce. We get started right there across the table. Who am I looking at? Oh, me. I'm first. All right. So I'm Jesse Perry. I'm one of the co-founders of RV Dirt. So we just do a lot of live tweeting, a lot of government meetings. Oh, thank you so much, Jess, for being here. I am Dr. Liz Costin, and I am a professor in the Department of Sociology at VCU. Thank you so much for being here. By the way, now that you say your whole name, I totally have seen your name all over stuff before. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that is so ridiculous how the world works. I can't remember it. I love Richmond for that way. Okay, next. Uh, my name is Ulysses. I'm the vice chair of the uh, Young Democratic Socialists of America at VCU. Boom. Love that. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. I invited everybody here because last night was July 17th. Was that the date yesterday? Yes. Yes. And uh, we really wanted to refer back to the community meeting that was held. And I did not get a chance to be there. So I invited some really amazing folks that I saw on the live feed that was on Facebook at the Justice and Reformation for Marcus David Peters. Please check that Facebook post out and invited them in to come and talk about that community meeting to get everybody caught up. So um, let's just kind of start about, I know Jess that you go to these things uh, with RVA Dirt that you, cause you guys cover the best stuff and tweet about it. So kind of set up, what are these meetings usually like with the mayor and, and what exactly is this mayor town hall thing that he does? Yeah, so this is the second year that he's done it. He did it originally um, in 2017. It was actually one of his campaign promises to have office hours in every single district in the city at least once a year. So normally when they, they have their own little agenda, little piece of paper, but the ideal goal is just to have anybody ask any question and he likes to have everybody on hand. So if it's the director of public works or the director of public utilities, or if it's chief, police chief Durham, whoever it is, there's usually about 20 people or so from the city. And then there's also police that are there and it, it's, always having somebody on hand to answer a question. So it's usually a pretty small setting. Uh, The ones I've been to this year, I went to the one in the second district, the eighth district, the ninth district, and now this one was the fifth district. So every council person's usually there also. Sometimes you'll get the school board member, but they, this year they've had three topics. The first one is always infrastructure. The second one is public education. The third one's always public safety. And honestly, it always comes right after his budget. And so he starts off every single one with the same pitch. Sometimes they're changed a little bit for each district, but he always talks about what are the things he's doing in that for the budget. And then he just opens it up for anybody to ask a question. So that's ideally what happens, at least ideal for his world, I guess. But in theory, anybody can show up to any meeting and ask whatever question they really want to ask and get it off their chest. So in the ones I've been to in the second, the eighth, and the ninth district, I would say probably about 20 to 30 people in each of those. Um, the ninth district was the most because they had food. <laughs> um, I got there apparently late and there was no food left. 
Appreciate but, the ninth for the hospitality. Yeah, yeah. So there was probably closer to 50 people in that one. Um, I've asked around. The one the 5th District was last night. And a typical meeting for them is around 30 to 40 people, which is a pretty good turnout for one of these meetings. Uh, then you also had probably about the 20 people from the city. So there were times where somebody did a head count where there was close to 140 people at this meeting. Last night. Last night. And that's including the city people and everybody that was there. So it was a very different type of meeting. Very packed. Very much yeah. packed. So, and just to kind of clarify that the organizers were there for Marcus David Peters. And the reason that they were there was because the mayor and the mayor's office has yet to meet with the family and the organizers. So after the June 30th community meeting that happened for the organizers to really, and that they invited the mayor, they invited Chief Durham, they did not show up. So at that meeting, they said very directly that they will then go to them. They will go to the mayor's, um, these office hours. And that was the plan. So the idea that um, this was not a surprise for folks, it shouldn't have been a big throw off or anything like that. If anyone's been paying attention. It was advertised on Facebook. You know, I've tweeted about it. I know I've tagged him in it. Mayor Sony that is in it. Everybody's been tagged. Right. Right. So what is usually the feel of, of these meetings? <laughs> laughter not from last night <laughs> not not what happened last night okay yeah so normally people are there to talk about like like drainage issues they're pretty much like people are frustrated but they're at their wits end because they just don't know who else to talk to but everybody's super friendly on the city side super helpful um last night was interesting because uh first of all it was kind of just tense i think partially because it was crowded um, and then, of course, everybody knew there's kind of the elephant in the room of like, what's going to happen? Who's going to say what? When's it going to happen? Like, what's the plan here? Everybody's kind of just on the edge of their seat, I think. And on top of it, uh, Mayor Stoney was just snarky from question one. Hmm. You know, uh, he sometimes gets that way, I've noticed, where he'll kind of have those quick little quips where he tries to kind of jab, get a jab in sometimes and stand up for himself, I guess, is maybe how he sees it. Mm-hmm. But uh, usually it happens when people keep asking the same questions over and over, or especially if those questions are things that are like beyond his control. So a good example was during the, the meals tax when he was having all these district meetings and people kept asking like, well, why can't we tax plastic bags? And he's like, but the state though. <laughs> <laughs> right. So from the question one, you know, somebody made a comment and it, it was interesting because in this situation also, the, the people in the meeting mm-hmm. weren't just taking his answers. They kept asking follow-ups, which so is not normal. So, okay, that, that is different. A yes. follow-up question is different type of meeting. Um, Liz and Ulysses, have you guys ever been to one of these meetings before? I have not. This is my first one. Okay. All right, Liz. I haven't been to the office hours. I've been to other town halls with Chief Durham, though. Okay. So that's a, a different thing from this. But yeah. So last night was a little different. Um, there was a lot of burgundy in the room apparently. So everyone knew that there was a different feel to this. And that's really interesting that you talk about the mayor's behavior that way. And it's also really interesting that you picked up on it uh, because that means that something was going on there. Something was triggered in that. And you mentioned defense techniques, really. I wonder why he felt defensive. I wonder why he felt defensive. Okay. So let's uh, talk a little bit. So I, again, was woke up this morning. It was 5 a.m. I was like, I got to catch up about what happened with the organizers and Marcus David Peters. And I was watching this feed. And I mean, from moment to moment was just like mouth dropping. And just the questions were amazing. Princess Blanding, Marcus David Peters' sister, really had those follow-up questions of standing her ground about what it was important and the demands. 
And one piece that I saw Liz jump up and and ask a question was just something that really blew my mind. And I was like, this is the type of things that I wish the media would would show and talk about because the way that the mayor responded to the very first question of Princess Blanding, the sister, was the answer was, well, we have to trust the process. He cannot meet with the family. The reason why he has not been engaged with the community to address this process and address this problem that we all have with the demands is because he has to wait for the investigation. So the answer was, trust the process. Trust the process. Well, I'm really interested in how we can trust the process with the type of questions that you had, Liz. Could you tell us a little bit about the question that you asked and the information behind that? Sure. So the question that I asked was related to why the incident involving the shooting of Marcus David Peters didn't appear in any of the use of force reports that were released by the Richmond Police Department. Every month they publicly release data on use of force reports. Well, if you go back and you look at the line-by-line incident reports, all the way dating back to the beginning of 2017, there are no instances in which firearms are used against citizens. And given the size of the Richmond Police Department and the fact that police departments generally really tout the fact that, hey, we didn't use firearms at all against any citizen. There were no officer-involved shootings. That just doesn't really happen in a city of the size the of size. Richmond. Right. And so I went back and I tried to verify this, and I found numerous instances in which there were officer-involved shootings that weren't contained in the data. And some of those also involved things like the subject being tased first. Mm. Well, the taser incident related to that shooting, because it's all one incident, also doesn't appear in that data. And so any incident involving a firearm was systematically omitted from the publicly released data. So you say it's systematically omitted. How do we know that it was omitted and that that information was there and somebody had to purposely take it out? How how can we say that? So if you look at the... the publicly released data, there's actually a small cross-tabulation table that shows where the firearm incidents, how many occurred. Mm -hmm. That doesn't appear until February 2018 in the data. Wow. But you can't produce a table like that from data if it's not there in the data. And they're there, right. And you said that you mentioned before um, the show that there was a form that contains these certain questions that they have to fill out. Yeah, so every time there is a use of force that goes beyond what is departmentally approved, officers are supposed to submit a use of force report. Okay. This includes if they strike a subject, if they use a firearm, if they use a baton, etc. And so it's the same form whether you use a firearm or whether you strike someone. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that somehow only the firearm reports are contained elsewhere when all of the uses of force are reported on the same form really also doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see why maybe a department would want to look at that separately, but they should all be in the same place because they came from the same form. They came from the same form. Uh, if I can ask a question, um, you said that the officers have like will report their usage of force. Is it solely up to the officers at the incident to report their use of force? So it's all self-reported by officers, and that's also something that's problematic. Um, There are lots of exclusions. So if they use a departmentally approved technique, um, for example, a departmentally approved takedown, they wouldn't have to fill out a use of force report. Wow. Wow. So a departmental uh, 
a departmentally approved takedown could still look like someone being, you know, you know, assaulted or, you know, taken to the ground somehow. But if it's done the right way, sorry, if it's done the right way, then, uh, then it doesn't have to be reported. They're technically also supposed to, to report anything that results in injury or if there's complaint of injury. But again, these are self-report data. So we are relying on the honesty of officers to go out go after the incident occurs and fill out that report. Uh And also for somebody to enter that data correctly into the system and then for that data to go from the police department systems to their public website. And clearly there's something happening in that process where the public isn't getting all the information. And, And we know that very clearly by just looking at the one event of Marcus David Peters that is still not reported. Is that what you were saying? Yes, along with numerous other events, right. um, of off- specifically of officer-involved shootings. But I'm sure that there's incidents missing using tasers, canine, mm-hmm. batons, mm-hmm. other types of things. So when you brought that up at the meeting last night, what was the response? Chief Durham's response was that it was an oversight, that they only found out that that information was missing that day, and that the information on the website was being updated. So that day, the same day that happened to be a community meeting, they just so happened to realize that there was a major oversight in data reporting publicly. Yes, they just happened to notice that. I'm sure that they saw, um, take them down RVA, I saw had retweeted something about those incidents missing from the data. So somebody somebody in the public had also caught this um, aside from me. and. The police chief became aware of it and that instantly way. was like, there's a community meeting tonight. I better go fix this problem. Remember, he was very adamant. It wasn't just like this is being updated. This is this has been done. Right. We saw this today and we fixed it today. Today. I mean, he you guys have got to watch this. The replay of the live feed. It was just like he was adamant. Like, I know what they showed me. I know what they showed me. And to the point of like he asked you to look it up. Right. Yes, and I looked it up, and I went to the May report, which should have contained the firearm incident, and it wasn't there. Jesse found out later that it's because they had only updated the most recent June report, but that means that all of the 2017 data is incorrect. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all of the what? all yeah, so of everyone, the reports. It's it's each one's listed by month, and if you go, because I did the same exact thing, because I'm like, well, this happened in May. I'm gonna look at May data. Click, not there. And so I'm clicking on to June. And first of all, like, it took a minute to even find it on the website. Right. It's not. So tell everybody where on the website that they possibly maybe could. It's like deep down in there. So if you go to the Richmond Police Department main page, you have to go way over to the left-hand side, scroll about two-thirds of the way down the page, and it'll say IAD statistics. That'll bring you to a page that has their complaint data um, and their use of force data that's publicly available. And they're, they've got every month in 2018 separately, and they also have a comp- compilation of 2017's data. But okay. the only one that, is, that was updated yesterday was the <laughs> June 2018, none of the prior data. So the majority of the publicly available data on their website still omits those cases. Is inaccurate. Yes. Yes. Wow. But trust the process, though. Well, why wouldn't we? We trust the cops, right? Oh. Speaking of trusting the cops, speaking of that, Ulysses, I, again, why I had to have these certain people on the show because there was this question by this young person that just made me 
I mean, just start screaming the profanity into my phone and, and texting Jesse at 6 a.m. Like, what happened at this meeting last night? So, yeah, what Ulysses, tell me about, like, tell me a little bit about your experience last night and then what made you even come to asking that question. Um, so the, the, the reason I asked that question was because... Um, well, tell everybody first, what was your question that you asked? So I asked the chief of police if he believed that there was a systematic problem of state-sanctioned violence against black and brown people in this country. Not specifically in Richmond, but there was an issue of, uh, you know, black and brown people getting murdered in this country. Like, there was an issue of violence against, against us. Do you think, like, do you, do you own up to the fact that there's a genuine problem in this country where we have black and brown people getting literally murdered in the streets by our police officers? Like, y'all accept that as a fact? Yes or no? And he flat out said no. He asked yes or no. Yeah. Yeah. Ulysses was very clear in his answer, just like he said now, and said yes or no. Do you believe that? And he did not. He didn't. He didn't begin to like open up and frame and say well or you know well actually or maybe he said no with no hesitation. No, it came out. Didn't skip a beat. (laughs) Like (laughs) it was the craziest. In his tone, I don't know if anybody else feels like the way that he did it was like no, like he was shocked. Like why would anybody ever? Like he was just so taken aback. <laughs> he was taken aback, and then he got like angry. Um, well, first after after I asked that, and he said no, like the entire room just was like uproar. Oh, 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 yeah, it was uproar. And then after that, he stepped away from the podium, and you know began to like approach me, like you know walking towards uh, the middle of the room to get closer to me, and like lean in and make that eye contact and saying, no, like this and that, there's not a problem. I, he, I think he said, I want to treat people fairly or something along those lines. Good old equality. Yeah. You know, let's just, everybody can be equal. But yeah, so, so can we trust the process? We see the data is wrong publicly. We ask the, the very, what you think is a simple question. Like, is there a systematic issue? I think when people say, you know, can we trust the process? I think it's important to look at what the process is. The process is, the process is what's killing people. You know, I say this all the time, and this may just be my own radical opinion, but I don't think you need a pistol to pull somebody over in traffic. I don't think you need a gun to respond to somebody very clearly in a mental health crisis. That, you know, he he posed absolutely no threat to that police officer. And particularly if he felt he was in such a dangerous situation, he should have removed himself rather than taking it upon himself to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner. It's like the process is what's, is, is what's killing people. So you're going to say the, pro, like the people engaged in this process are then going to take that process and then make it right. We've seen that that does not happen. There have been like virtually no acquittals in any of these instances of police violence in this country. For, like the person who, uh, the cop who murdered, or yeah, the police officer who murdered Eric Garner, there was no repercussions for anybody except for the person who filmed that instance and it's ridiculous i think something like for people who haven't maybe not seen this video of of the incident that happened i think something that's really important to note is when the incident starts marcus david peters is naked he's getting out of a car and you can hear the police officer blatantly state this person's in a mental health crisis and instead of putting their gun away they continue to hold the gun and also take out a taser and as he goes into the street, he, he now has two weapons in his hands at somebody who he's already identified as having a mental health crisis. And so when you think about what the process is, I think, and Chelsea and people way more knowledgeable of the process than I could talk about it. But, you know, when, when you talk about somebody in a mental health crisis, step one of the process is always, well, call the cops. That's who needs to help. Right. And then their process is, 
weapons. Right. And there was actually some people that talked about that last night, about having to call the cops, what that means. Can you trust to call the cops? Do you call the cops? And it really depends on, on your setting and your own cultural means and what we're thinking about. But that video and what happened in that video is already being sold as it was appropriate from a cop standpoint because that nobody has stepped up and said anything because now we have to wait for the investigation, which was a great point that someone else brought up last night of, well, what happens if the investigation comes back that everything happened within protocol? Does that mean that there is no change? Even though we just heard the chief Durham say that there is no systemic racism going on in our country. I think, I think that's the biggest problem with saying that we have to wait until this investigation ends to start discussing procedure and protocol is because that suggests that if this was within procedure and protocol, we don't have to review procedure and protocol. And the real issue is that incidents like this happen routinely. And there are other people who may be injured, may be killed because of these specific protocols and procedures. And it doesn't rely on the outcome of one case for us to say, maybe those protocols need to be revised. Right. Right. So what are you all's motivation in this? Right. Because I talk a little bit about, I want to ask who you are, what you do, but why are you involved in this? And like, why are you taking your time? Because I am involved as an organizer, as a clinician, I'm a mental health person. So just as Jess was saying earlier, I can identify that situation where he was naked on the side of 95 and approaching that police officer with a verbal threat, how he still was not a threat to that officer because of the resources that that officer had. Um, and the, the steps and the things that he could have done in that moment to de-escalate the situation that he didn't and said he had two weapons in his hand. So I can see right there my motivation because I work in the mental health field and having a naked person run at me is not uncommon in my job. It actually, for many years, working in the community on the side of the road, I had people threaten my life, and but I never had a firearm. So that's my motivation with doing this. Ulysses, can I start with you? Can I ask, what, what motivates you to be here? Why did you show up last night? So I think a lot of the reason I do the things I do in terms of organizing and trying to make a difference comes from my background. I'm biracial, but I look, I, you know, I pass as white. So in my life, I've seen the difference in the way that my family members have been treated and the way other black people have been treated versus the way I'm treated. And one of the most scary things I've seen in my own personal life is uh, seeing people who don't look at me as, you know, passing and seeing the difference in just the way people look at you, but also seeing the difference in, like, when you tell somebody who may have some, uh, I guess, you know, sus opinions on, you know, people of color and such, a, a switch goes off, and you can see the difference in the way someone looks at you, and it's something very subtle that I, I don't think many people see who, aren't, who can't, uh, who aren't, I guess, on both sides of, I guess, you know, being... Uh, white versus being non-white and you know going to my family like my dad was the last person to live on the on the uh, same property of which my ancestors were slaves on like you can look in the overgrown shrubs and see the stone fences that my ancestors have built and my uncle still works for the uh for mr thompson the person who owns the land the entirety of their wealth comes from the exploitation of black and brown people so that's my motivation i guess and where are you from uh, i'm from virginia like I, I grew up in northern virginia but that was out in marshall where my dad lived okay 
And you are a student. Do you work? What do you do? Yeah, I go to uh, VCU. I'm the vice chair of the VCU Young Democratic Socialists of America. And you're just showing up because you heard Marcus's story and you were motivated. What? Yeah, I mean, uh, he was. I mean, he was. He was lynched. Like how? Like I don't understand like why we should mince words about it. People say there was a police involved shooting or anything like that. Like we need to be clear. This man was murdered. This man was killed by the state. This is happening everywhere. Like, I don't know how this isn't everyone's priority or, you know, at least not on everyone's radar. Yeah, no, definitely. And you just said some really powerful words that he was lynched. I, and I, I, you know, people have told me, like, like I, I remember sending out an email for the uh, YDSA when this first started happening, uh, trying to plug one of the meetings that the organizers were putting together. And someone rep- replied to me saying, I don't know why you chose the word lynched. He wasn't lynched. He was shot. And, you know, I, I think, you know, while maybe the technical definition of lynching maybe somebody you know being strung up it's it's the same thing happening today as was happening with Emmett Till as was happening with all these other people back in the day the means may be different but the root causes of it and the reasons it's ha- reasons why it's happening are the same so that's that's why I use that word and that's why I think we should be clear with that word and use it in these instances of these state sanctioned lynchings I love it that's so disruptive and it's a whole different narrative to get you back in the historic place of that this wasn't an isolated incident. It really frames it and makes you look at that. It makes people uncomfortable. So I appreciate you using that. Liz, why in the world are you here? You're a whole like VCU something professor. My goodness. So it's really cool that you're here. Talk a little bit about your inspiration. All right. So I am a sociologist and I study crime and social inequality. And so this is really at the intersections of crime and social inequality. Um, My personal research is on anti-LGBTQ hate violence, but we know that there are important intersections with crime and racial injustice as well. Do we know, Liz? We do do know that. There (laughs) There is ample evidence that demonstrates that racial and ethnic minorities are not treated equally by the justice system. And I find it really appalling that Chief Durham cannot admit that. The fact that we have a police chief who can say that there are not racial injustices that occur in policing is really problematic. And part of what I do is use data to understand these inequalities, to show how they impact people's lives, and to use numbers to tell a story about the patterns that go on. So I got involved with this because um, I've been involved with some community organizing. Um, For example, I was involved with Southerners on New Ground and some of the things that they've been doing around the creating a civilian review board for the police, which hasn't really taken off yet. But this idea of civilian oversight of what are the police doing? Are they policing justly? Are they policing equally? When we look at crime data for the most part, and when we look for racial bias in policing, we usually find it. And so the fact that the Richmond Police Department won't, won't release their data on right. traffic stops, when they won't release their data on Terry stops, what is it that you don't want us to know? Right. Chief Durham keeps saying that there are no problems with race and the Richmond Police Department. So give us the data to prove that. Right. Yeah, data is so important. And something else that was brought up in the meeting last night was somebody asked about the programs uh, that the public safety is doing and uh, Chief Durham and his programs in the community. 
And one of the questions were, what is the data for those type of evaluative numbers? Do you have any numbers to show that these programs are working? And what was, what was the, I wasn't there, so I'm trying not to speak on this, but I saw it in the video. But can you guys talk a little bit about what he said to that? He said, come down and see for yourself. His sense of these programs are working is that he's there, and so he believes they're working. <laughs> but that's not data. <laughs> right. No, it, it's, it's, so, and the idea that the data only came, again, yesterday is when the community asked for it. The community had to demand it in a way, and so it was up there very strategically on the day of the community meeting that the organizer was coming to. So my day job, I'm a performance manager ah. for a sales organization. I wish, <laughs> I wish that on my mid-year and year-end assessment, I could tell my manager, just come on down and see the results. <laughs> oh, that's fine. <laughs> like, that works. Yeah, that's all you got to do. We're definitely doing the work, boss. You should definitely trust us. And by the way, we have a history of doing the right thing. No, we don't. Like, it's not at all. And it's, it's just such an important conversation when we talk about historically. And so, Jess, I'll definitely give you a reason, uh, a chance to talk about your motivation of being there. I mean, you're just like a community awesomeness. I have to remember. Something. Yeah. You're a, I was going to say a profanity word, but that's how much I appreciate you. But I can't do that here. So tell us a little bit about RVA Dirt and why you guys follow this kind of stuff. Why do you take the time to tweet about it? Because, no, I haven't. I don't know what time it is now, but I haven't followed any media of anyone else covering the event from last night. Anybody talking about the completely offensive things that are coming out of our own police chief's mouth. But RVA Dirt is there doing that. So why do you guys take the time to do that? Yeah. So I, uh, in 2016, I actually ran for school board of the district that I live in, the third district. And for me, when I was going through the process of that, I really realized, you know, for me, it doesn't matter as much who we actually elect if we're not holding those people accountable. And I think that a big reason that people don't hold people accountable is lack of access to officials. And part of it's just people don't understand. It's boring, all these different things. Or you can't find out when the meeting is. Right. And you can't be there all the time. And, you know, I have the advantage where I have cats are pretty self-sufficient children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm able to, to kind of have that lifestyle where I'm at a lot of meetings, depending. It doesn't matter what time of night it is. Um, so for me, it's really about holding people accountable. But and that's all of the government meetings. So we live tweet city council, school board, do a lot of deep dive research because, you know, I have the time, but also I have the privilege to have the educational background to really understand some of these things and, and really dig in and ask some of these questions. And they don't impact me all the time, but they impact a lot of people who don't have the time and who don't have the privilege. And so I think people do need to be more involved and accountable. So we try to make it pretty easy. But for me specifically, I've been trying to make a point for at least one of us, if not more than one of us, because there's not just me, there's two other women, um, Melissa Vaughn and Francesca Lee Davis, but not that Lee Davis. <laughs> um, so we, uh, we've made a point to really try to be at as many of the community meetings for Marcus David Peters as possible. And for me personally, it's because when I look at the picture of Marcus David Peters, it, it could be any one of my friends. It could be anyone that my friends have dated. It could be people that I've dated. It's really difficult to see, regardless of where they're at, when these things happen over and over and over again. But to know that we drive down 95 where this happened, to know that 95 was put there intentionally and decimated the black community in Jackson Ward and the intentionality of the capital of the Confederacy and everything that it is. I think it makes it that much harder because it really is your friend. It, it really is your sibling. It's whoever it want, you need it to be in that moment. 
So for me, I think that it's it's always been a point of I don't care how tired I am. I don't care how many more things I have to be doing that day. I, I try to at least make it out for especially those meetings and put emphasis on it because it matters. Mm-hmm. And I think it matters for people to be able to go back and see those things because you're right. I, I didn't see media there. Right. And it's odd because I've seen media at other meetings. And you know, this to me was one of out of the meetings where people have talked, this to me was one of the most important ones because of what ended up getting put out. This was not the first time I was at a district meeting or these community office hours where somebody asked Durham and Stoney about Marcus David Peters. The first one was actually in the second district. Somebody came out and asked a question and they were alone. It was only one person. They were sitting next to me and they asked the question. Stoney didn't say anything. Didn't have to. They put Durham on the spot and he said, trust the process. The investigation needs to be completed. And now you're in an environment where fast forward a few weeks and People are not letting that answer stay. And now you're also not just putting Durham on the spot, but Stoney was forced, put in a position where he was forced, even though I think that he tried to sidestep it by quickly handing the mic over to Durham. (laughs) Um, You know, he tried to get out of the way because he knows that at the end of the day, like people are looking at both of them, but Durham, people have a tendency to probably give him most of the flack. And he just couldn't avoid it. It, And so I think it was unfortunate that other media wasn't there because that is some of those sound bites. Yeah. Well, we are definitely going to share them on my Race Capital page. So please check that out and um, just continue to check out the Justice and Reformation page on Facebook for Marcus David Peters. And you can check out these sound bites that we're really talking about because this was a really uh, um, a type of meeting that unveiled, unearthed a lot of these same racist narratives that we've seen throughout history. And it's right here in our Richmond capital. And if we don't hold these elected officials accountable, then when it comes down for it happening to a family member or someone else that we love, then we're going to be asking for the community for the same type of support. And so it's important to go out and reach out and follow what's going on to really be able to do your part and support your neighbor. Because like Jess said, it could be anybody. Um, I really want to thank RVA Dirt for everything that you guys do and coming out. And you just spoke all the freaking inclusive words, right? That you have privilege, you have the time, you have the education. So you really spoke truth to power for that. And I appreciate you doing that. I appreciate Liz and Ulysses for taking the time out for you guys to come and just share your voice right here so we can amplify it as much as we can and just being very honest about where you are many people that are in these positions may not want to know may not may to talk about where they work they don't have that privilege or that access so this just happened yesterday we hit up everybody this morning and you guys came right on so i really appreciate that that shows so much commitment to the family and to this city really Big shout out to Princess Blanding. The way that she stood up in that meeting yesterday was just like, woman, you are so strong for doing this and was, did not back down. She really is the rock to keeping the organizers going and pushing this narrative forward. So big shout out to her. And, and in case you don't know, she does not even live in Richmond. She travels far, where's Sussex? Like far hours to get here sometimes in traffic just to make this really known for our city. And LeVar Stoney is not her mayor, but she wants to make this place better for us as well, for her brother and how we are spending our time as well. So I want to ask this last closing remarks and just anything else that stuck out from this meeting, because for me, this was just such an important narrative of who are our leaders and who do you protect? Who do you serve? Right. So um, any last final thoughts from anybody? 
Uh, I'd like to share an anecdote. Um, yeah. This was before the meeting and everything, but it it was after a it wasn't after it was after some sort of meeting that the family had put together, and um, I had t- I had taken some flyers that they were giving out to you know disperse, and I, I remember going into like a uh, it was a brewery next to uh next to Starbucks. I forget where it was. It was on a what's that road? It's like half of Richmond. I was just saying which brewery. <laughs> Not very. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty vague, but. I went in and I was like, "Hey, you know, could I uh, hang this flyer in here?" And he and he looked at it and he said, "No, sorry, we don't do political things. You know, no political flyers." And I I think it's, you know, astounding that we consider, you know, the death of, like, a, the death of a person something that we politicize. You know what I mean? Like this this isn't it's not politics to be advocating for the justice of a man who had his life taken from him. You know, like it's not. It's not political when people die. That's that's just a matter of, you know, basic humanity. And that was not the only instance in which people turned me down because, you know, they don't do political things. So that like that stuck out with me. Like there it was that place and um I think another corner store and I think a, a gas station that all said, you know, no political ads. It's just, it's tragic, really. Yeah, and it's one of those ways that they get to detach, right? Yeah, Cuz I'm exactly. not a political person. I don't I don't do politics. So they get to detach very easily with that. Yeah. And so just to kind of wrap up that meeting, a lot of dynamics. The meeting was about two hours long. The Facebook live feed is there. Um, you can kind of follow along there. There's a lot of good stuff that happens. But just you mentioned that a lot of times they bring out like the, the top people there. Did we ever talk about the councilman that was there? Wait, was the councilman there? Yeah. And he didn't say a thing. Yeah. Not a thing? No, he, he was like, he just ghosted us. Like, <laughs> I, 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 I think he might have left. I mean, maybe like because my eyes weren't on him because he wasn't speaking, but he was, you just he, like he was there a smoke the bomb and was he gone. He was there the whole time. That's so interesting. <laughs> so I think it, it's especially interesting because there was another community meeting where the one that the mayor and Durham didn't show up to, that ninth District Councilman Mike Jones did show up. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, on the you know, June 30th. He made some comments and... Well, I, I don't agree with all of his comments, and he got, I think, some criticism. I think what also is interesting about this meeting is that there was another councilman here, 5th District Councilman Park Rajalasto. He was there the entire time. I talked to him afterward. Can confirm. <laughs> he didn't fully ghost. Um, and, you know, he's one of, probably out of all of them right now, like, I, I really enjoy Parker. Yeah. Um, he, he really does a lot of different things that are different and actually does try to do all the research. Like, there's a lot of positive things I could say. But not only was his voice absent, but I think our criticism was absent. Right. And I, I noticed that myself. I didn't even didn't register me until I got home. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> like, did I not get critical of the fact that Parker said nothing? Nothing. You know, because people were quick to get critical about what Mike did say. Right. Right. And, you know, I think that it's something of just like self-reflective moments of, you know, Princess went to city council and right. all nine of them said nothing. Said nothing. Yes. Didn't acknowledge her there. And Mike went and he did apologize to her for that in that meeting. and. Fast forward, you know, only one out of nine has said something. Right. So, right, exactly what she's saying well, is. Go ahead. There was um, there was another councilman. I forget what district he was from, but uh, there was an earlier meeting that another councilman was at. I'm pretty sure. Uh, he was an older dude. He he, he must have served up for a long time, or maybe he's just an old dude because he was saying like his experiences with uh the Richmond police was the thing he mentioned. Maybe he's a former councilman. I don't know. Okay, we'll have to look into that so. one. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely check into it because I know it sounds like two former councilmen, possibly, or no, one former councilman and then possibly one community member. Okay, we'll have to figure it out. Yeah, now well, I'm curious. Now I'm like, I'm like on alert. Like I can hashtag some stuff real quick. 
No, but that's really important about what wasn't said, right? And how are we criticizing? I mean, that was a district meeting, the fifth district meeting. So the, the leader of the fifth district was completely silent on the majority of the topics that were being, the, where the passion was on that evening. And then when the ninth city councilman, Michael Jones, came and he did say something that a lot of people thought was good. And then towards the end, it was like, oh, he's kind of avoiding a lot of just the things that we need to hear that makes us comfortable. But he did stand up. He came to the meeting and he, he also offered to speak. He stayed there through the majority until he had to go to another function that was in his district. And so where's the criticism for the other eight councilmen? For this issue and um yeah it's a it's another really great question of in the race capital who talks about what and who doesn't say anything and what does that mean is that silence violence because we politicized his death like it's mm. they they think it's dangerous to advocate for justice of a dead man because Oof. people politicize it Oof. and it's dangerous to advocate for justice yeah yeah politically it's dangerous because you know there's a lot of people who don't think I guess a lot of people just don't think. <laughs> yeah, right. That's I think a, that's it's important point. to kind of finish the sentence that you're kind of going there is like it's dangerous to them in their careers. Exactly. And it's dangerous and it hurts them instead of looking at, you know, the big picture of all of us. And it's self-serving politics when right. politics and politicians should serve us. Because changing things means that they're doing something wrong now. Mm. Right? If you make change, then you're admitting that there was something wrong in the first place. And that is a dangerous position for a politician to take. That's a dangerous position for the chief of police to take to say we did it wrong mm-hmm. and we're going to do better. It's dangerous that the leader of the second largest armed force in the state of Virginia, second only to the National Guard, doesn't think there's an issue with state-sanctioned violence against black and brown people. That is simply dangerous. Like, if he doesn't think that's a reality, then that's a reality that's certainly happening here, and we've seen it. So I had one more thought. and. One of the things that I didn't hear last night was we got a lot of trust the process, trust the process. We'll discuss this when the investigation is complete. But there's no indication of when that investigation will be complete. And I understand that you need time to investigate and that you want to do a thorough investigation and things like that. But we look at the complaint data that's on the RPD website. There are civilian complaints that were opened in January 2017, that at the close of 2017, we're still open. So how long is this process going to take? Right. And how are we going to move the conversation forward if we can't discuss it until the investigation is closed and we have no close date? And that was another big question that came out yesterday was, why do you have to wait? What's going on? What's taking so long? It's been two months. The community had some great questions, guys. So making sure that you guys go back to this feed and taking a look at it and just really see that the community is out there speaking voices and these systems and these folks are just not answering. And we're putting a lot of slack and giving a lot of pressure to Chief Durham, but he works for the mayor. And LeVar Stoney stood there next to him as the chief of police denied the systemic racism that's going on in our country. Yeah, we're all conditioned to this type of thought and this process. All right. Well, that is going to wrap up the interview. And I want to just thank my guests for being here. Before we go, I just want to also give last um, shout outs of anything that's going on um, in your world that you just want to elevate. Um, I just want to give that opportunity to on this platform. If anybody has anything. 
Uh, so the YDSA at VCU, uh, I recently started uh, what we're calling like the, the public garage, the Richmond public garage. Basically how this works is, um, you know, a large part of being working class is being able to get the work. And if your car is broken down, you can't get the work. I've seen that happen in my family. It's happened to myself. It's, it's a common thing that people often overlook that is, is one of the things that, you know, hold people down in poverty is fixing their cars. So basically, we started this garage, and the way it works is all you have to do is cover the cost of the parts, and we'll fix your car if we can. I'm the one doing all the repairs right now. I'm the only mechanic that we have. Uh, generally, I know older uh, domestic cars better, but I'll take anything you have to offer. Um, a good way to contact us is uh, uh, vcuyds at gmail.com or uh, ithacasulysses at gmail.com. So, yeah, please reach out if you, you or any coworkers are in a financial hardship and can't get the work, you know, struggling with the car. Thank you for doing that, Ulysses. That's a remarkable for a VCU student. Anyone else? Come to city council meetings. Yes! Follow all the things on social media. Follow RVA Dirt. Follow WRIR. Uh, follow myself, Chelsea Higgs Wise. Follow all these important people as they are doing this work because they are just as important as these elected officials because they are really doing the work. And thank you guys again. Thank you. Thank you. So that's a lot. Uh, that's just the tip. I hope you come back and chat with me and how in the world we're going to do this as a community. RVA can't just change and do what we expect it to do, which is going to wipe the hell out of all of us until we don't even recognize each other. We have to maintain the goodness of Richmond that's soaked in melanin. We have to confront our systems together by taking the daily challenge of how you and me plan to use our privilege due to the roots of white supremacy to disrupt our still prevalent racist narrative frame, keeping our institutions and those good people working in them hostage. Restorative justice is a mass effort by our community and every voice must engage. To hear more, follow me at Race Capital on all social media platforms. And Capital is with an O, ladies, gentlemen, and all those in between. Have a great one. And until next time, check your lens. And thanks for listening to Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs Wise.